Welcome to the show called The Brand Called You. The brand today is Congressman Raja Krishnamurthy. Welcome to the show, Raja. Hey, great to be with you, Sandeep. Congressman Krishnamurthy represents Illinois' 8th district. He's from a family of educators and professionals. His father uh, teaches mechanical engineering and his brother is a doctor. He himself studied mechanical engineering at Princeton and law at Harvard Law School. Early on, Congressman Krishnamurthy worked with uh, Barack Obama in his campaigns in 2004 and 2008. He's also served in various roles in Illinois state government, including being deputy treasurer. He's an entrepreneur who has built a defense and solar energy company. He lives in Schaumburg, Illinois with his wife, Priya, who's a doctor, and his three children. He's a popular congressman. He was elected with 66% vote in the last re-election in 2018. He serves on the Committee on Intelligence as well as the Committee on Oversight and Government Reform. And he is up for re-election in the uh, 2020 November election coming up. Let's get started with a few personal questions, Congressman. These don't need any thinking, just your gut reaction. Tea or coffee? Oh, coffee. Stroll on a beach or dinner downtown? Oh, I like to eat dinner downtown. What is the most played song on your music device? Oh, that's a great question. You know, I like I like anything you do. Anything you do. Okay. What sport do you like best? Uh, football. To play or to watch? Well, <laughs> playing <laughs> I I played one year in high school, but I decided, you know, it's better for me to watch after that. Yeah. safer at this uh, at this time now being a politician is a no off day kind of a job and by the way thank you uh, i know you were in middle of uh, votes being called on the floor and you took this time and uh, taking this call from a uh, car so it's no off kind of a job what do you do when you find yourself with a free afternoon if i have a free afternoon it's with family you know my wife and i have three kids a 15 11 and a 4 year old i joke that uh we have a, a teenager and a toddler i'm ready for anything in congress but on a free afternoon i'll just i'll just spend time with them whatever they're doing and and i'll be uh, very content got it what book that you might have read recently gave you a new understanding of uh, something that you were thinking about you know there's this um there's this book that came out in the 2000 2000s i didn't read it then but i read it recently it's called daring greatly by brene brown and yes. i think that one of the things that i took away from that book was one of the reasons why we don't dare uh, to do big things or to dream big or to take risks is sometimes we get labeled and we have to avoid at all costs kind of labeling people even if it's ourselves <laughs> and um i think that we want to defy labels that you know put us in a box and and get out of the box and do and and do new things and i think that my journey has 
kind of exemplified that uh, to some degree. Well, you have certainly done that both from working in in law firm, then starting a business and uh, now being a full-time politician. Tell us about one time that you faced failure. I mean, of course, your resume reads a string of success. And uh, what did you get uh, from that experience where you might have failed? I failed kind of too many times to to fit onto a resume. But the one time that's very public is I, you know, I lost my first race for Congress. And that was very public. It's all out there for everyone to see. You have a lot of people who supported you. You have a lot of people who donated to you, invested in your enterprise, so to speak. And yet we lost and uh, I lost. And I, what I learned from that is uh, a couple things. One, as long as you can lose with your head held high and you can look yourself in the mirror and say that you gave it your all and you took some, to, you, you learned the lessons of that defeat, well, you can live to fight another day. And, uh, and then the other thing that I learned is that you know, politics is really not a transactional game. It's a relationship game. And what I mean by that is you don't, you know, you don't make friends in politics just for one day. You're hoping to, to make a relationship so that when you're down, hopefully they stay with you. And in this case, they did. And I reciprocate for a lot of other people. And I've learned, uh, you know, I happen to be a Hindu American and I, I believe in the law of karma and what goes around comes around and that defeat taught me a lot about helping others when they're down. And, and I, I, I find that it works wonders even for me. That's great. And, and you definitely dared to be different, not be labeled by that one loss and move on. In the time today where the opinions are strongly held and violently expressed, uh, what I've tried to do is ask questions which you will see will be at the boundary of what uh, I see happening in the political discourse. You sit on the Committee on Government Oversight and Reform, uh, where Republicans are saying that there is a deep state conspiracy and everything is a hit job, and Democrats are saying that there is too much meddling by political appointees. How do we create trust on information that's coming out of government and actions that are being taken by government? And how do we make it more reliable? What are the checks and balances in place? It's an incredibly important question and a good question. Um, I think the big answer is that government has become dysfunctional. It has not solved some of the biggest problems and challenges facing uh, not only our country, but our planet, whether it's climate change or whether it's immigration here in the United States or whether it's the access to health care, government has not been able to get its act together and present, problem, present solutions to everyday problems that everyday people face. So the net result of that is you have deep distrust of government, you have deep distrust of the information that comes from government, 
And what we're seeing right now over the last four years is a form of populism that's channeling anger toward the institutions of government that have failed to deliver on solutions for everyday problems. And so I think the long-term solution is hopefully we will get our act together and start to solve some of these pro bigger problems. And the short-term solution to that is starting modestly with smaller challenges where we can work together and build trust and start to build relationships across the aisle with reasonable people ac across the aisle on both sides and then build out from there, Sandeep, um, so that we can start to avoid the endless debates about the deep state or you know, prevent an administration from, for instance, meddling in the mortality and morbidity reports that are issued by the CDC on a weekly basis. You know, yeah. These are just facts. This is information that people need. And so that's, that's, that's my, that would be my approach. You have powers on your committee. You have tried to subpoena people even very publicly, even in the last couple of days, there have been issues on which you have tried to get uh, Peter Navarro to come and speak with you. And, and, uh, but do you think there is enough checks and balances in the system today that uh, on basic information like mortality rate and uh, other information, which cannot really be debated, that we would be getting accurate information? I wish I could say yes with 100% confidence, but unfortunately I cannot. Um, I think that we have to continue to scrutinize all this information and be able to question the public servants who produce them to make sure that they felt like they were not politically manipulated or forced to do or say things that, you know, the public would not want. There's a general theme right now, Sandeep, where I believe with this current administration, it does a lot of things for the benefit politically of the current incumbent, but it's done at the expense of our national health and security. It's happening in almost every department and agency and, and yet, I don't fully blame just this administration for having created this situation. I also think that government as a whole has not solved those everyday problems. And so it's uh, come to be distrusted by a big segment of our population. Yeah. It seems like we have more information 24-7, but less confidence that what we are getting is meaningful. Moving to second question on... COVID, we are in midst of this huge pandemic with severe impact on people and economy. Now, there is ideological difference to some extent between Republicans and Democrats on what ways and what sections of people and businesses should be supported and how. I wouldn't go there. My question is on affordability. Democrats are usually blamed for being spendthrift. Do you see any negative impact with the size of stimulus. Is it something as too much stimulus which would have a negative impact on economy and currency? It could. I, I'm not going to pretend like we can spend any amount of money that we want. That being said, I do think that we are in a war situation right now where we have a deadly insidious virus that's already killed 190,000 people in many cases needlessly because of the response 
the mismanaged response that we've undertaken as a federal government. But that being said, um, there's an economic crisis that's happening right now as well because the demand for goods and services has dropped so much that perfectly good businesses are nowhere near their pre-pandemic levels because of shutdowns, because of health problems, because of the mismanaged response. So in that situation, I do think it's, a, it's appropriate for the government to help make up for the lack of demand with its own spending. Jay Powell, the Federal Reserve Chairman, who's no liberal Democrat, just three days ago said he believes that we should come up with another stimulus package. He didn't say how much or what its components are, but I think that we need another one. We need another one soon. I, I think that after this crisis is over, we're going to have to go back to the issue of how do we deal with the debt because it's unsustainable long term. But for the moment, we've got to survive. Um, I, care, I care very much about debt, but I care even more about death and preventing death right now. Changing to immigration, these are all, each one of these could be a longer discussion, uh, but I know you're short on time. Immigration has been one of the reasons that United States has been such a magnet for best and brightest from around the world. But there is a rising sentiment that it has been too much. Is there something like too much immigration? And how do we achieve the right balance? Well, to me, immigration boils down to, do we insource talent or do we outsource work? That's what it boils down to. I'd much rather insource talent and insource work and insource jobs and insource companies than do the opposite. That is what has made America extraordinarily a successful country it's become we have a way of rejuvenating ourselves. So in answer to your question about immigration, I think that it's the killer app, if you will, that we can never give up. And we, only, we do so at our peril. I think with regard to high-skilled immigration, I don't see how you could ever have too many bright people, hardworking people, entrepreneurial people, and others who are risking everything to come here to start their economic lives. And with pluck and luck and hard work, they create jobs and companies here. And that's why I'm so dedicated to that. And for other docu even undocumented immigrants, those are folks who, again, risked everything to be here and in the vast, vast majority of cases have led good lives here, have rooted themselves in the community, have become a part of the fabric of our country their children are too, and we should provide a pathway for them too. So, so you don't think we are we are an open borders kind of a society right now with a with a huge risk? Actually, I, I went through your voting record, and and you do have a fairly consistent record in in favor of immigration. But I do want to ask you one question on an, a specific vote on a bill that passed called Kate's Law. Uh, where the way I understand it, the summary was that it is to increase criminal penalties on individuals who came into the country illegally, were convicted of certain crimes, deported, and then re-entered U.S. illegally again. 
Why would you vote against something like this? Wouldn't this be what Republicans say is Democrats want open borders? First of all, I don't I do not believe in open borders. I am an immigrant myself who came here legally with my parents. But the issue that you're talking about with regard to Kate's law involved basically a situation where it's already a crime to re-enter after having been deported uh, for committing crimes. It's punishable by up to 10 years. What they were proposing to do in terms of increasing the penalties included forbidding the person who re-entered from even contesting the initial deportation. So for instance, uh, the initial, this law, Kate's law, would have made it illegal for someone to have uh, entered uh, under the claim of asylum um, and been able to contest that I initial entry as being illegal. I don't think that's right. I don't think that's who we are as a country. It goes to the notion that this country should no longer be a place where asylees should seek refuge. And I just can't support that. Uh, this is the land of the free, but also a beacon of light for so many people who have been persecuted, whether they were Jews or whether they were um, others fleeing dictators and religious and ethnic persecution. Social divide, as I mentioned earlier, it's visible that the battle lines are hardening across the country. On one side, we have visible anger and resentment built up over decades, if not centuries, on issues that need redress. On the other hand, violence and property destruction does not feel right for any resolution. How do we navigate to redress this situation without creating law and order situation? And Democrats are a little bit slow sometimes to condemn some of the law and order issues like property destruction. Do you think it's okay to be destructive in protesting against past issues that have been there? Well, first of all, I I'm one member of Congress who condemns any type of property destruction, any type of violence, any type of looting, but also I strongly condemn any type of misconduct, whether it's by law enforcement or anyone else toward any, any member of society. And I think that what we absolutely have to avoid is a situation where a president or a politician of any, uh, at any level stokes divisions or tries to pit people one against another or try to pit the suburbs against the cities or the rural areas because that only adds fuel to the fire. We need to lower tensions. We need to calm things down. We need a return to stability. And that is ultimately what I would seek to do right now. The impact that this kind of violence and uh, rigidifying stance is having on minorities in general. Do you think, um, as a minority and a person of color, do you think the current situation is becoming harder? And I know you co-sponsored uh, a bill on this as well on you know, racial violence or other things. Uh, does that impact and do you see it as a trend that is troubling? And would it continue, let's say, beyond the current regime? Is it some kind of an irreversible societal change that's happening? 
or do you think it's an abnormality right now and would go back to being an open society and accepting society as the election passes? Um, I would hope it's the latter. But Sandeep, it really depends on the tone from the top. I think that is one of the questions on the ballot for all Americans right now, which is what kind of leadership do we want? Do you want someone, whether it's a senator, a congressman, or the president, do you want somebody who is going to try to want to understand the racial injustices present in our society and try to address them in a constructive, concrete way? Do you want somebody who is going to fan the flames? You are a person of Indian heritage, so am I. You were one of the few Democrats who went to the Howdy Modi event. And you were the only person of Indian heritage uh, from Congress who did so. Uh, there is quite a bit of excitement about Kamala Harris being uh, partially of Indian heritage. However, it does seem that Democrats don't get along too much with Mr. Modi's government. Is it true that U.S. will have better relations with Modi's India under Trump than with Biden? I actually think that the U.S.-India relationship is bipartisan. It's nonpartisan. It transcends partisan politics. It's too big for any one individual on either side to disrupt. And this is why I say that, you know, from Bill Clinton to George W. Bush to Barack Obama to President Trump, we've deepened, widened, and strengthened our relationship, not just from a commercial standpoint. Obviously, the people-to-people uh, relationship has always been strong, but also from a national security standpoint. Um, I sit on the House Intelligence Committee, and I can tell you that our national security is in part bound up with India's and the security of the Indo-Pacific region. And so I believe that Joe Biden uh, will continue to strengthen the relationship because at the end of the, end of the day, the Chinese government, to me, poses the biggest mutual threat, not only to us, but to the international rules-based order and to democracy everywhere. And so that is why I'm so confident that Joe Biden is going to continue to grow the relationship to new heights. The two other observations I'd make is Joe Biden was the one who shepherded the U.S.-India nuclear accord through the U.S. Senate when it faced great opposition at the start, bipartisan opposition. As the chairman of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, he was the one that did this. So let's remember that. Then the second point is, um, I understand that, you know, there might be some differences here and there, but uh, that's what happens in a family. And we are a family of nations at this point. And um, I truly believe that Joe Biden will continue to cultivate the relationship, and especially on immigration. That, we cannot forget, is something where Donald Trump has painfully harmed the relationship. And it's one that requires great repair. And that's one that Joe Biden will repair. How do you describe your ethos, your brand? My brand is get, get it done. That's, that's my brand, which is I'm not so interested in rhetoric. I'm not so interested in talking. 
Um, I'm much more interested in getting things done, getting results. I'm not so interested in green new rhetoric. I'm interested in green new accomplishments. If you want to call, put a label on what I, I like to see happen. And, and I want to help people. I think uh, I was put on this earth to help people. However I can be of service to people, that's my calling right now. Thank you so much, Congressman. A man of action and few words. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you so much, Sandeep. Best wishes. Thank you for listening to the brand called You Videocast and Podcast, a platform that brings you knowledge, experience, and wisdom of hundreds of successful individuals from around the world. Do visit our website www.tbcy.in to watch and listen to the stories of many more individuals. You can also follow us on YouTube, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Just search for the brand called You.